Okay, you guys, we're gonna we're gonna start in here. Good to see you guys today. Who's in the mood for a little Leviticus? Like strangest sentence ever uttered at Redemption Church right there. So we're messing around in the beginning of Leviticus here with these offerings. We're doing the last two today, the Hatat, the sin offering, and the Asham, the, the guilt offering. To study this um, passage this week, I realized like sin and guilt, like you say that and I kind of clench up a little bit in, in churches especially because I think the way we're taught about sin and guilt isn't very helpfully um, helpful to us. Most of us were probably taught something um, like this, that sin is what you call it when you screw up and it's your fault, right? You did something wrong. So sin is like a willful transgression of a known good. And in a religious sense, um, many of us were taught that the penalty for even the littlest sin is death, which is a bananas crazy thing to believe. But that's, that's what we were, were taught. Um, somebody probably quoted Paul to us saying, the wages of sin is death. Um, but then they probably said, you know, but God allows a substitute, right? An animal in the Old Testament, Jesus in the New Testament. And if you enact this substitution, you're good. How many of you grew up with something similar to that? Lots of Baptists in the audience. Cool. Um, <laughs> even a, yeah, I mean, hopefully it's connected by now. Even a plain reading of Leviticus, like, does not allow this kind of simple algebra. The Hebrew notion of sin and why it's a problem, are very different from that. In, in their imagination, sin is always connected to this idea of shalom, peace. Not peace as in no war or violence, but peace as in everything in its rightful place, doing what it's intended to do, and thereby relating rightly to everything else, all of it flourishing. That's, that's peace. And so sin is whatever works against shalom and flourishing. And it's so, in a sense... At its heart is a, just a disordering of creation that produces things like barrenness and chaos, these twin threats, instead of wholeness and, and flourishing. So sin is a problem, but the problem with sin is not that it creates a negative balance in some cosmic ledger of right and wrong that God's keeping somewhere. That's not God. That's Santa Claus, right? Making a list, keep checking it twice, going to find out he's naughty and nice and only good little boys get gifts, Right? Um, hours of therapy connected to that whole narrative for, for me. That's, that's not God. That's, that's Santa Claus. It's certainly not Christianity or Judaism. The problem with sin is not that it creates some negative balance in a cosmic ledger. The problem with sin is it disorders everything that it touches and wreaks havoc on God's good creation. So things can't do what they're meant to do. They can't relate rightly. And so the world starts to malfunction under sin. Sin sort of just ripples out into the world, contaminating everything it touches, causing, um, causing the death of things that God wants to live. So sin is disorder, misuse. And the result of sin is, is cosmic malfunctioning. It's almost like sin is pollution, um, that damages creation and makes it kind of go, go haywire. You know, there exists in our world now this whole class of industrial chemicals called polyfluorinated um, alcohol substances. It's, it's some, they're sometimes called forever chemicals. Have you read about this? Once They're called forever, forever chemicals because once you make them, you can't unmake them. Like um, 
human bodies can't process them, and, and even, the, even the soil can't, like, filter them out. It's all kinds of things, like nonstick bakeware, water-resistant clothing, stain-resistant furniture, cosmetics, pesticides, smartphones, fast food wrappers, paint, microwave popcorn wrappings. I read that, and I was like, oh, that's terrible. Like, <laughs> and I'm not giving up microwave popcorn. Like, who are we kidding? Um, these things are bad, and our bodies can't process them. Nature can't filter them out. Even our water filtration systems, they, they can't. So these forever chemicals are just building up in the soil and the water table and in bodies. You find it in breast milk, in newborn children's bloodstream, and in, even in small doses, they're toxic to human beings. It causes all kinds of different cancers, um, reproductive system problems, immune problems, and they're everywhere. Like, even in, in non-industrialized countries, like, they find these things in remote places. That's a good metaphor for kind of the Hebrew imagination when it comes to sin. Once you work sin into the world, you're kind of stuck with it. You can't take it back. It's just out there, having an impact on things. And so the problem with this isn't just like a cosmic balance sheet, like God's keeping tick marks, you know, and, and keeping track. The problem with sin is it disorders creation. So things cannot find peace, wholeness, flourishing. Sin is what, what you call it when some aspect of the world becomes warped and distorted and then won't fit back in place where it's supposed to go. And so the whole thing misfires. And, and you can't just pay a fine and make that all better. You know, being sent to jail, sent to hell, does not restore shalom to the world. And that's what God is after. So you could say, in a way, you, you don't pay for sin. Sin pays you. That's what Paul was trying to say in the wages of sin is death. It doesn't mean when you sin, God is watching and is going to, you know, squash you um, or send you to hell when you die or something. That's not the metaphor. In the ancient world, you get paid your wages at the end of the day. Like, immediately. You work, you get paid. You work, you get, you get paid. So that's, that's the metaphor. If you, you sin, sin pays you. It's wages right away. And it's wages are, are death. You cheat on your wife, your marriage dies, right? You pollute the environment, your, the, the earth begins to die. You, you lie and steal and cheat to whatever get rich, then your chance at a good life dies. So God isn't all revved up to, like, punish people for their brokenness. Sin can punish you all by itself. It can pay you its wages without God's help. What God is after is not payment for sin, but the right ordering of the world of creation. This, by the way, completely explodes Christian fundamentalism. The problem with sin is not that it creates a cosmic debt with God. The problem is it disorders the world and disorders human beings in all of our relationships, including our relationship to God and self and other and world. And so what God is doing here in Leviticus at, at the tabernacle has to do with that. It's not balancing some sin ledger through ritual animal sacrifice. What, what God is doing is taking an ancient religion that always involved sacrifice. Every religion back there had animal sacrifice. And, and using that to teach the Israelites a new way to structure the world that will lead to shalom and wholeness and flourishing. 
So it says, Leviticus 4.1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the Israelite people thus, when a person unwittingly incurs guilt in any regard to any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done and does one of them, and then it's going to go on to a thing. So real quick, notice these offerings are for unintentional sins. There is no provision really for intentional sinning. Um, people who, who do that are correct. They're cut off. They're put in like a time, time out until they make things right. And, and so, so this offering is for mistakes. It's for unwitting transgressions, like errors and accidents. And so in, in, in the Hebrew, the, the way this reads, it's interesting. It's ki nefesh tehata bishkaga. So ki nefesh, that should sound for, uh, familiar. If, that's that law word. It's used a whole bunch of times. If, it's, this is how laws in the ancient world started. If or when a nefesh person... Te hata, um, the hata, the English translation in most of our Bibles will say sins. That's not actually what the, the word means. There are other words for sins. It's, it's really, without going into way down the rabbit hole in too much detail, hata is closer to if a person is found to be in the wrong. It's a subtle difference. Um, but when something malfunctions and then you figure out, oh, this is my fault, that's hata. And, and then there's this unwitting aspect to it. And the word there is the word bishkaga, which is just the best word ever. Bishkaga. Say that with me. Say bishkaga. bishkaga. Yeah, some of you almost sounded like you're cussing. In fact, this is my new favorite non-cussing cuss word. I've worked this into my vocabulary a lot this week. Like when something goes wrong, I'm like, bishkaga happens, man. That's, just, that's, that's the way this goes. And this one is going to stick too because it totally fits. So, so when Bish Gaga happens and they realize, oh, dang, this, is, this was my fault. I blew it. Then this is what they are to do. They bring an animal, a cow, a goat, a lamb, a bird. They lay their hand on it. Remember that whole deal, Samak? And they appoint it as their representative. They're not transferring guilt to it. That is not what that means. They appoint it as their representative. And, and then there are these instructions to the priest that we read. He shall remove all the fat from the bull of sin offering, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is about the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them, that is at the loins, and the protuberance on the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys, just as it is removed from the ox of the sacrifice of well-being from an earlier chapter. The priest shall turn them into smoke on the altar of burnt offering, but the hide of the bull um, and all its flesh as well as its head and legs and entrails and its dung and all the rest of the bowl, he shall carry to a pure place outside the camp to the ash heap and burn it up in a wood fire and it shall be burned on the ash heap. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. <laughs> so, okay, so what, what do we make out of this little chestnut of a passage? What's this teaching them? So we, we can do hours on the symbolism. Honestly, I have sheets of notes, and I'd, I'd probably cover just a little bit of it. But when Leviticus goes into this much detail, a good rule of thumb is to pay attention to things that repeat, but especially to things that um, give a relative position and things that include strong prohibitions. So when they start prescribing like the position of things relative to other things, but this on top and then this and this goes on the side and this goes in the, in the bottom, they're usually giving some symbolic meaning about how to order the world, how to arrange things for shalom. And when they mention strong prohibitions, like don't eat the blood, don't touch this, put this way outside the camp, there's usually a symbolic meaning about the kind of boundaries that make for shalom. 
And so when Leviticus, Leviticus goes into crazy um, detail about relative position, there's usually a lesson about how to order the world. Or when it goes into like kind of strange, almost it seems like random prohibitions, these are teaching, there's some symbolic meaning about proper boundaries that make for flourishing. So what the priest is going to do, they're going to take your offering and they're going to kill it and butcher the animal, separate the parts, wash a bunch of them, and then they're going to put it all back together on the altar in a different order. This is what they do. They re, kind of reassemble the animal in, in a pile according to a specific order. The head of the animal goes on first along with the meat sections and the, and the bottom. That, that's all kind of the bottom layer of the pile. And then the fat or what's called the suet. I didn't know suet was a thing. I'm not a cook. Does anybody, has anybody used suet in, in bread pudding? If we were English everybody would, would do this. So it's, it's like this really hard layer of fat that's around, um, it's dense and hard. It's almost like a protective layer around things like the liver and the kidneys. So the suet is a boundary in the body, goes on the altar as a boundary um, between the top of the pile and the bottom. So it's this middle thing, basically splitting it into three parts. And then the very top of the pile, what they saw as um, the most important stuff was the entrails and intestines and genital organs, which back then this, this would make sense. You know, it, for, for them in the, in the ancient world, the seat of knowledge isn't the head. It, it's, it's the gut. That's the seat of, you know things in your gut, right? This is where you feel compassion, which is a very human thing. So, and of course, sex organs were about procreation and virility, power, strength. And so, so these are the most important things. They go on the top of the pile. So when the, when the tile, pile is finished, the animal's reassembled, except for some parts that don't belong. Pile's finished, put on the altar, and then it would have this three-part structure that would bear a striking resemblance to the structure of the world revealed at Mount Sinai. So this is back to last summer in our Odyssey through Exodus. Remember, Sinai had these three zones as well, right? There's an upper part, middle part, and lower part. Also bears striking resemblance to the tabernacle and how that was to be arranged. It had, had these three zones, not this way. It's like turned on, it, on its side, three-part structure. So Mount Sinai, there's the summit where God dwelled, and there's all this smoke, and only Moses, one guy, could go up there. And there's this middle perimeter with a barrier of dense clouds, and only Aaron and like um, 70 of the elders and Aaron's sons could go up there. And then there was the lower slopes where all the children of Israel could go. Same thing with the tabernacle, similar structure. The, the summit of the tabernacle is the Holy of Holies, where only the priest, high priest can go one time a year. And then the sanctuary with this dense cloud of smoke from the altar of incense that's in that outer one. And this is kind of a barrier between God and the people. Only the, the priests can go there. And then the outer courts where all the children of Israel can go. So all, all three of these major symbols in Leviticus, Mount Sinai, the tabernacle offerings, they have these three zones that are kind of a, a progression for how this fearful sinful people can begin to approach God without fear. It's this kind of graduated holiness that has kind of um, at its pinnacle at the top, Mount, Mount Sinai, or in the, um, in, in the Mishkan, the tent of meeting, it's the Holy of Holies, or here on the altar, it's the, the top of this pile set ablaze on the altar. 
And so the whole reason for all the graphic details about how to arrange the body of the animal on the fire, it seems to be reinforcing this idea that God is giving them a new way to structure and order the world that will allow them to draw close to God. And this is the only way they can hope for peace, is to get close to this God so that God can lead them forward toward flourishing. So at first, it's, the presence is way up on top of the mountain. They can't even go up there, and it's like long ways away. Moses would stay up there for 40 days. And then God's presence was right there in the middle of the camp, freaking everybody out, by the way. And now it's somehow interacting with this sacrifice on the altar. So it's gone from mountain far off to tabernacle to the body of this animal, which is my representative. Remember, I laid my hand on it. It's, it's representing me. So, so then what happens is here on this pile on the altar, something incredible is going to happen. Once, once the pile is made in this specific order, this new order, it says, the priest shall turn them into smoke on the altar of burnt offering. This phrase is really important, turn them into smoke. It's repeated like 11 different times in the book of Leviticus. The, the Hebrew word is hiktir, and our, our English translations say burn, which is not what hiktir means. There are a couple of Hebrew words that mean burn or incinerate. That's not hiktir. Hiktir literally means to transform into smoke, turn it into smoke. That's what it means. It doesn't mean burn. Um, so, so this animal we put up there is, is tamim. Remember, it's, it's blameless. It's whole. It's, if it's a goat, it's like everything a goat should be in the world, right? And that's why we picked it. And then we would samak. We would make it our representative by laying our hands on it. It represents me. It's been sacrificed. The blood has been drained out. It's been butchered. Its life has been reordered on the pile, on the altar. And then it is, not burned, turned into smoke. It's, it's not um, just being destroyed. It's being transformed from one way of being into another. It's almost like if you boil water and it turns into steam, it's still H2O, right? Either way. It's being transformed here. That's what happens on, on the altar. It's less about burning and it's more about, um, less about a sacrifice and it's more about a ritual transformation from one kind of existence into another, the kind of existence that can, in a sense, ascend up to God, ascend the holy mountain and commune with God or enter the holy place, right? There's always smoke in there, can rise up, you know, like the fire, be in the presence of God. Now, everything, everything can't go up. Some of this stuff is just taken outside the camp and, and burned up in the fire. That word is burned. It's just incinerated, destroyed. That's, that's the offering, the sacrifice. Isn't that that wild? The sin offering, the symbolism of it, is about restructuring their lives, the world, toward peace. And then allowing our lives in that moment to be transformed, kind of poured out, turned into smoke. Of course, if you've lived very long, you, you know that all human character is formed in, in, in the fires, right? In the crucible of pain. You know, we, we find our life by losing it, right? We must offer our bodies as living sacrifices, for sure. 
Really quickly, I want to talk about animal sacrifice because we haven't talked about this very much, just kind of the grossness of it. We haven't addressed it yet, so I'm just sticking this in here because we have to address it at some point. And I know it seems barbaric. Does anybody have a blood thing? And every time I mention blood, you're like, I'm not sure. Anybody have one of those things? It's this <laughs> spouses raising their, their spouses. On. That's funny. So it, it is, it's barbaric and a little bit cruel. So just a few things I want to say about this that will kind of maybe help us. One is we don't do animal sacrifices anymore, so that's progress, right? And, and we should, this, this was just a stop along the way, and we moved past it, so we should give thanks for that. But it was different back then. Everybody did it. Everybody did animal sacrifice. That's one thing. Second thing, in ancient religion, one of the main problems was you never knew where you stood with the gods. They were like cranky and irascible. And so you make a sacrifice and nothing happens, and you're like, oh, I'm in real trouble, right? And so it could quickly escalate into self-mutilation kind of stuff. This happens with, with um, the prophet uh, Elijah. Remember that? And the prophets of Baal. They're cutting themselves, wild orgies. Even child sacrifice kind of hangs over the text. So Leviticus, what we're reading here, is very conservative, very measured and ordered by the standards of their day. And it was teaching them how to live without anxiety toward God, which was a brand new thing. They could know where they stood if they follow the teaching. That's the second thing. Third thing, when we start to get all judgy about how they're, you know, gutting or slicing the throat of animals and doing all this kind of gruesome stuff, we need to remember we kill far more animals per capita than they ever did. 24 million chickens a day in the U.S. Just so we can have strips, chicken strips, which are amazing. <laughs> right? 36, sorry, it's really it's gruesome, but they, they didn't separate, right? The 36 million cows a year in the U.S., that's what we kill. 214 million turkeys, 124 million pigs, 8 billion chickens a year right, are slaughtered in the U.S. It's a lot of blood. We kill far more animals than they did. The main difference is we never have to see it. We go to church, then we go out to dinner. They just pack that all at the same thing, right? They just did it in the same place. But we're killing a lot of animals. We're consuming too much meat. It's damaging the planet. And I'm not saying everybody needs to be a, vegeta a vegetarian. I'm just saying it was 105 in London last week, okay? So something's wrong, and we need to maybe connect to what this is doing to the planet. But we're disconnected from the killing of animals, from this idea that something has to die in order for me to live. I mean, it's very rare that we have met the food, the animal that we eat. We, we, we don't really kind of see the food we kill and eat, but we do kill and eat. And it's no less bloody. We just don't have to see the blood. Okay, that's the end of the aside on animal stuff. Let's keep going. Chapter 4. There are four different times in Chapter 4 that they're told they need to do this offering, and two of them are mentioned as much more serious. One is if a priest sins. The other is if the whole community sins. So... Um, it says, verse 13, if the whole Israelite community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, when they realize their guilt and sin they committed becomes known, then it says you have to go do this offering. 
So this is about corporate social sin of the entire society. And there's kind of this progression in the text around the seriousness of the sins. The greatest act of the most pollutive or polluting or offensive um, act against shalom is when a priest sins or the whole entire country sins corporately. Personal sins, not as serious. Or a chieftain, like a tribal leader, not as serious. Serious, but not as bad. Part of how we know this is that the blood from, from the sacrifice is treated completely differently. In the case of the priest, for instance, who sins, it says, verse 6 and 7, the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood, carry it into the tent of meeting, dip his finger into the blood, and sprinkle some of it seven times before the Lord in front of the curtain of the sanctuary. It's the Holy of Holies. And the priest shall then put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense. So the, the priest's sins have polluted the Mishkan, the holy place. It's gone out from them and it's getting on all the stuff. It's rippling out. And so the blood, in this case, has to go inside the tent and make atonement at one moment for those things. It's treated most seriously when one of their leaders, I mean, these are the leaders of the nations, they sin. The next most deadly sin is communal sin, social sin, which we hardly ever even think about. Systemic Evil, systemic sin. This is, if you're, if you're interested, the, the first book I ever wrote, Evangelical Social Gospel, it's all about social sinfulness and salvation. There are copies out there. You can just take one. You don't have to pay for it. Just grab one. This is a serious thing. The social manifestation of sin. Corporately, socially, we can sin, and this pollutes the world. This is so good at, at um, malforming, malfunctioning Creation. So when society is structured, structured around injustice, corporate sin, it damages community and persons. It has this ripple effect that affects everything. And so it's serious. Again, here, the blood goes inside the tent, has to purify things. A chieftain, they sin, normal person, you know, they come, make their offering, but the blood doesn't go inside the tent. They just put it by the altar. And so part of what this teaching is, is that they're, the most serious kinds of sin that they need to be addressing, the stuff that really messes up the structure of the world, is not just the run-of-the-mill sin of average people that we torture each other and ourselves about. It's actually the sin of the leaders and the sin of the social group as a whole. And so, th- I mean, this is addressing real stuff that we still struggle with. What, what do you do when you realize as a society that you've excluded certain people and left them out? Treated them as, you know, an afterthought, less than legitimate. Or if you've enslaved people because of racism and then you later on realize, oh, this is, that's really wrong. What do you do if you've killed native people by the millions in order to take their land? What do you do if you've been, not been fair to women and minorities, if you've mistreated people around gender or sexuality, or you've organized an economy in such a way that all the gains of the economy just go to like a little group at the top, or you find out the earth is being exploited and it's, it's suffering all for the sake of corporate profits. What do you do? These are corporate sins. What if you realize that as a society, you're just, you're missing the mark. Things are malfunctioning everywhere in the systems you've created of education, economics, politics, health care, criminal justice, race, earth care, gun violence, whatever. What do you do when you realize the way you've organized 
society is injuring people in the world, especially the weakest, and leaving people out. Well, Leviticus tells the people, here's what you do. And what they did was go through this very precise ritual, and it would cost them something. There's an action, a, a penalty to it. It would involve public confession, like an enactment of sorrow, and a, a reminder that God has this way of structuring the world that God wants to take us to take part in that, that involves us being turned into smoke, being, being consumed, being poured out for the life of the world. So they had this public ritual they could enact. When they figured out they'd messed things up, they could say, we, you know, we've cost these people a, a lot, so we're going to have to do something costly to us. We'll enact this sacrifice and remind us there's a better way to organize. We'll pour out our lives. We'll burn up our lives for the life of the world. Gave them this ritual way to um, address what God sees as the most serious forms of sinfulness, the sin of the leaders and the sin of the group. And then it goes to chapter 5. Chapter 5 kind of um, moves into what to do when we sin against each other. And it has lists all these great things. Like what happens if someone's on trial and you know what happened, but you don't speak up, right? And some innocent person is punished or some guilty one goes free. Um, can't imagine that having anything to do with our, our world right now. You know, what do you, what do you, you go through this chapter and it's like bishgaga is everywhere. It's still in our, our world. Um, if you thoughtlessly take an oath, right, you just you promise things you never plan to do, or you ruin someone's property, or you cheat, or lie, or steal, or you, you, you extort money, or whatever. How do you make things right with your neighbor? Well, it tells you. Go, you confess it. Then you make restitution. You make them whole again. And then you come and make a sacrifice, and you tack on a penalty. It even says it's one-fifth, one-fifth extra. There's a little temple tax there. And it's, so it's easy to think, you know, Leviticus is just kind of arcane and senseless, but it's about the stuff we're dealing with even now. Only we don't have public rituals for bishgaga, right? And we need this. I mean, we, not the animal sacrifices. That's just a, a cultural thing. But we lack these kind of corporate rituals we can enact together when we realize something's gone wrong and we're at fault. You know, and sin is paying us its wages in disordered society. Or when one of our leaders, you know, starts a war by, you know, misleading the public. You know, we carry the guilt of that. When it kills millions of civilians halfway around the world, it's not a small thing. And so without some sort of way to publicly recognize this, of course we're like polarized and, and just stuck and fighting and unable to move forward. We haven't dealt with the corporate sins of our past. We can't, if we can't tell the truth about things like slavery and racism, how are we going to deal with police violence against black bodies today, right? If we can't tell the truth about killing millions of Native Americans to seize their land and build you know, the greatest economy on the face of the earth, and how are we going to deal with the continued exploitation of the, of the planet, the environment, climate change, global warming, pollution. And it's no wonder we're stuck when all the really big 
problems we're facing. We have no rituals to face them together. And the way that we've organized the world is hurting a lot of people and continues to. And we don't know how to confess it as a society. Our only choice really is to try and deny it, to sort of repress the bad stuff, right? Which is why people want to hurt you when you bring the bad stuff out. But they want to stuff it down deep, you know, just try not to think about it. Of course, you repress something like slavery or genocide or racism or economic injustice or exploitation or violence. It will come back, right? It will come out in some other way that's destructive and divisive and violent. So there's just all this pain, you know? The psychic weight of sin swirls around our culture, in our politics, our economics, our art, our education, our, our systems. They're all plagued by this kind of residue of corporate sin. And there's there's this thing where a lot of people want to say, I didn't, I know I didn't own slaves. I didn't. This is us. This is our doing. We broke the world. And an inability to just own it makes us feel trapped and helpless and has us at each other's throats. And so the systems don't change. They just keep rolling. I think part of what it means to be the people of God is that we're the people who have the courage to tell the truth because we're not afraid of where we stand with God and because we've been formed in a community where we have some rituals and practices. We, we know how to do confession. It's what, I mean, Rob did a beautiful job today of just leading us in public confession. This is incredibly important. We have the courage to own up to what we've done, how we've wronged each other, and then to figure out how do we restructure these things to make things right, and then pour out our lives, let them be turned into smoke for the life of the world. And Leviticus is, I mean, it's, it's pretty remarkable, man. It's, it's, it's uncanny to see the way we're still dealing with the same stuff today, how to relate to your neighbor, how to deal with money and possessions and and how to speak the truth. What do you do with somebody who lies all the time? How do you relate to money? How do you build trust with your neighbor? What kind of structures make for justice? How do we live in a world that's obsessed with wealth and security and accumulation? How do we get to the truth in matters of conflict? How do we learn to be accountable to our neighbors for the things that we do? especially when we mess up lies, deceit, that kind of stuff. Still incredibly important. This is the world we live in. It's not the far-off world of Leviticus. It's Leviticus's now. And so there are arcane rituals. They are. They're kind of, I mean, we're not going to start. I mean, we could do a pig roast if somebody wants to, but we're not doing, like, sacrifices. Even the Jewish people don't do this. But hopefully you can see at the heart of this, it's about transformation and about restructuring for peace. It's not about getting God off our back because God's angry. I mean, God gets angered, but it's, it's different. This, this is our doing. Sin is paying us our wages. And um, 
it's interesting when you read Leviticus, it's kind of embedded in all these weird little things they do, is this highly advanced ethical code for how to live well with others, with our neighbors. And we, we need this. We need ways of doing this. So here's, here's what we're going to do as we close. We're going to receive communion now, but hopefully you got uh, a little piece of paper and something to write with when you came in. If you want to grab that. What we're going to do in communion, we're trying to do some kind of ritual as much as we can here in this, this Leviticus um, series. So I want to just invite you for a moment. I want you to think of and write down the corporate sins that bother you. The sins, not of you personally, the sins of the nation, as it were, the sins of our society, of our people, just write them just as a way of saying, I'm owning it, I can name it, I publicly confess this. And then when, when we receive communion, um, just come up and lay it somewhere on the altar. And um, we're gonna, I'll, we'll pull them all together this week and display them out on, on the wall in the atrium so everybody can look at them. So just take a moment and grab your piece of paper. What, what are the corporate sins, not personal, corporate sins that bother you, that you think this, this should be named? Take a moment. Write those down. And then we're going to bring them up when we do communion and just drop them on the altar. If you want to keep writing, you can. But if not, if you want to stand, we're going to receive communion now. And um, the way we do it is just the ushers will um, come forward and release us row by row. They'll come forward, be offered a, a plate of bread and a cup. Just take a piece of the bread and dip it into the cup and then receive it. Um, and as you do this, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can say amen or say I will remember. The reason we do this is because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and after he had given thanks, he broke it and passed it around to the 12. And he, he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And they all ate some of the bread. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he passed one cup, a common cup, around to all of them. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you gather in remembrance of me. They all took a drink. And then he said, whenever you get together from here on out, do this, eat, eat this bread, drink this cup, take my life into your life, be made out of the stuff I'm made out of, and then be sent out into the world to meet my hands and feet, to be salt and light to the world. And so that's, that's why we um, receive communion every week, just in obedience to that. Uh, it's a symbolic enactment. And um, that's also why we don't limit the table. Anybody who calls on the name of Christ can come join us. So um, if you would join me and let's pray a prayer of blessing. Lord, we do ask your blessing upon this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out and then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. 
all to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Will you come?